Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And happy Friday. So glad you're with us today on the Three Martini Lunch. We don't have all good martinis today, but it's a good run while it lasted. We have good, bad, and crazy today for conservatives. So let's dive right in with the one good one we do have today, Jim, and that's that the jobs numbers from October, better than expected. Non-farm payrolls up by 128,000. That was uh, much higher than the estimate of 75,000 from economists. We also got some pretty healthy revisions uh, from the past couple of months uh, by the tens of thousands in both August and September. Uh, Still have the lowest unemployment rate ever for African-Americans, 5.4%. Hourly earnings ticked up a smidge. Uh, Unemployment did tick up back to 3.6%, still around the lowest in in 50 years. And so, uh, Jim, a lot of folks are wondering where the economy's headed. The uh, third quarter GDP number was uh, less than 2%, so that's got some folks concerned. But uh, at least in October, things look pretty healthy. You know, Greg, this is the slowest arriving recession of all time <laughs> because, you know, I, look, there, there were reasons to be uh, to have a certain amount of trepidation about the future of the economy. It's been a really long boom and all, all things that, you know, uh, every, every economic boom is going to end sooner or later. Um, some issues of concern on the global economy. The global economy is slowing. Tariffs going on. Our exports are going to have a new uh, new impediment that's slowing things down there. Um, you know, there were some reasons for concern, but month after month, we kept having pretty good results. Now, what we have here is a scenario we've seen a co- quite a few months of, of when the new economic numbers come out. Um, what actually affects the unemployment percentage goes up or down by a tenth of a percent, uh, depending on how many people are looking for work, you know, workforce participation rate. It's good for us when that goes up, right? That means people who uh, previously were not looking for work could be stay-at-home moms, could be people who've given up looking, uh, were living on public assistance, uh, people who you know may have had a health issues, whatever reason, they weren't looking for work before, now they are looking for work. And that's good. That usually means that they're feeling uh, optimistic and then they feel better about their chances of finding work and stuff like that. Um, for the health of our economy and for you know our, our entitlement programs and all that kind of stuff, we want as many people who are fully bodied and able and who want to work to be working. And if they don't want to be work uh, be working, let's say they're stay at home moms or maybe stay at home dads or something like that, um, that's fine. You know, but that's a uh, that's one less person who's in there. You know, paying payroll taxes and things like that. Um, so we want that workforce participation rate to go up. It did go up. It went up at a rate that made the unemployment rate go up to that. What do you say it was, Greg? 3.6? 3.6, yes. All right. The the die marker, like they used to put in the bags to catch bank robbers when they robbed the, the, the bags full of money from there. If you see anybody saying, see, the unemployment rate went up, this is your die marker that, that person is an idiot. Um, <laughs> that, you know, this is a good jobs report. You know, is the unemployment rate up one-tenth of a percent from last month? Yes, but it's because more people are looking for work. People who had, you know, been discouraged now jumped in. 3.6 is still super duper terrific. I think anything below four, look, anything you know, between four and six is historically fine. Anything below four is super duper terrific. So, um, you know, for for a, at a time when there's a lot of political tension, the fight over impeachment and uh, uh, the situation in northern Syria and all that kind of stuff, look, the U.S. economy still seems to be humming along pretty well. 
Well, let's talk a little more about Super Duper here because Elizabeth Warren just the other day talked about how Super Duper enforcement was how she was going to find a lot of revenue to uh, help pay for her massive health care scheme. And uh, one of the big criticisms of her, certainly in the last debate, but even before that, was, hey, you're planning to do all this Medicare for All stuff, and, but you really won't say how you're going to pay for it, and you certainly won't say whether you're going to raise taxes. Well, Liz Warren is out with her plan and how she's going to fund Medicare for All. She says it's going to cost just under $52 trillion, because, Jim, if it was if it hit $52 trillion, I'm sure she would have just scrapped it uh, over yeah. 10 years. But it's going to be under $52 trillion over 10 years. Uh, she's also going to require the federal government to absorb $20.5 trillion in new spending. Uh, but it's also going to use efficiency savings generated by Medicare for All to cover the uninsured. So what does all of this mean? Well, mainly it's a giant smokescreen here, but because she says not one penny in middle-class tax increases. I'm not sure I believe that for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, she says she would raise her proposed wealth tax to 6% on fortunes over a billion dollars, uh, treating capital gains for the top 1% as earned income and requiring taxes to be paid annually, imposing $2.9 trillion in new taxes on corporations and foreign earnings and creating a new 0.1% tax on financial transactions. I'll be curious if that's just on corporations or on all of us. Uh, also predicts $2.3 trillion in additional revenue from stepping up enforcement of existing tax laws. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, Jim, she also wants to repeal the Trump tax cuts from 2017, so somehow that's not a tax increase on the American people. I'm just uh, sketching the surface here. There's a lot of details here. But as you read through it, what do you think? This is a target-rich environment, uh, both for her Democratic rivals and for the Trump campaign. Um, I I think what this reveals is that nobody really knows how to make uh, Medicare for all really work for everyone. The Bernie Sanders approach is to raise taxes on people who are in the middle class, but the argument is, well, you'll like it because you're not going to be paying your insurance premiums and co-pays and deductibles and all that kind of stuff. And as Amy Klobuchar had said in that one, at least it's honest. You, you may not like that idea. And I think there's a lot of reasons for, America, for uh, Americans to not like that idea. But OK, it, it is at least acknowledging um, that this is a you know, covering health care for every single American and having it paid for by the government is going to require a lot more tax revenue than we have right now. Warren didn't want to do that because, you know, if you're giving basically, basically, if you say I'm going to do the Bernie Sanders plan, well, why not vote Bernie Sanders? Um, I guess it's only the charm that you would have to, to <laughs> roar ahead of Bernie Sanders in this primary. Um, the part that jumped out the most to me, and this thing that struck me as the most uh, wildly unrealistic. If you have prescription drugs, you know, you probably, if you're covered by insurance, you're looking, like, oh, this is great. I only paid, you know, $3 or $5 as my copay. Uh, for this one. This is, that's pretty good. If it's not covered, if you all of a sudden get it prescribed something that is not covered, you're like, oh my God, this, this, this uh, bottle, this, this jar of pills is $300. One of these a month. Are you kidding me? Um, prescription drugs are expensive. Sometimes you can find generics and they're a little bit less expensive. Um, but you know, prescription drugs, by particularly brand names, particularly ones that are where the patent is owned by a particular company, um, they're going to be really super duper expensive and it's going to be, you know, many people find it deeply frustrating. Now, some say this is because prescription drug companies are greedy. Uh, other people would say, well, well, actually, no, I mean, prescription drug companies, of course, they want to make a profit, but it takes a lot of time and effort to research and develop new drugs. The uh, approval from the Food and Drug Administration is extraordinarily long. It takes about a decade to bring it to market. Uh, and then you only get your patent for a certain number of years. So, you know, the drug company is like, like, hey, we're trying to make our money while we can. 
because at some point it starts becoming, you know, the, the patent expires, it becomes generic, and anybody can make the drug. And at that point, you know, your competitors are making as much as them. We can have that debate. What we can't really disagree with, though, is that obviously drug companies do need some profit in order to finance, but just to pay for all their employees, but also to say, hey, uh, let's do research and development to find new types of treatments, new types of medications we can give people. The Elizabeth Warren plan says that for prescription, you know, for brand name prescription drugs, the government will take over the healthcare system and then pay 30% of the current costs to get prescription drugs. And she believes this is not going to cause any drop off in the quality of care and the quality of access to prescription drugs or in our, our rate of innovation in prescription drugs. This is bat guano crazy, Greg. This is, this is you know, because so you, if, you, if you're trying to, like, oh, God, how am I going to make these numbers work? How do I get these numbers to balance out? How do I cover? Well, if you could, if you just say, okay, I'm going to assume that I can pay only 30% of what I owe. You're, all of a sudden, the numbers are a heck of a lot easier, right? Could you imagine your thirty percent of your rent or mortgage? It'd be a lot easier to make your your monthly, uh, uh, you know, make checkbook balance, wouldn't it? Yeah, let's just do it. And you could apply that to anything there. Now, the other thing, you know, so the generic rate is that um, the other thing also is Medicaid reimbursement rates. Uh, depending on which doctor you talk, generally they're pretty darn low, right? Uh, one theory, I think, it was John Delaney in the primary who was saying, look, if you do this, every every hospital in the country is going to go out of business. Probably not every last one, but a significant majority say, look, we lose money on uh, Medicaid patients. The government does not reimburse us what it costs to do this treatment. We do, and some doctors will say, we do it anyway because we feel a need to treat people. But this means we have to make enough of a profit on those other customers to cover the cover so we can take the loss on these treatments. Top to bottom, this is a wildly unrealistic plan. It is full of unicorns and rainbows and all that kind of stuff. Um, and ultimately not serious. And I think the really interesting question to come in the coming months or uh, weeks and months, Greg, is going to be how much pushback does, does Warren get on this? Does she get tough questions about this in the debates? Does she get tough questions about this in the interviews? Um, because really this is the medical equivalent, Greg, of saying we're going to build a big, beautiful wall and Mexico is going to pay for all of it. <laughs> That's right. Well, I hope she gets pushback in the, uh, in the primary because she certainly won't get it from the mainstream media if she's the nominee. So it's pretty much up to uh, the other candidates here because in the debates, the, the questions are fairly open-ended. I mean, she was asked specifically how she would pay for it, but it's not like in a debate stage they're going to go point by point like we just did. And in the one-on-one -on -one interviews, unless you have a healthcare policy expert, most reporters aren't going to spend the time going through the minutia. So uh, this is uh, very reminiscent of Obamacare. A lot of red flags popping up, people pointing out the red flags, and essentially the media and Democrats going, ah, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. It would be great to see Democrats really push back on this. Um, my sneaking suspicion is, and look, if you're you know, any one of her rivals, this is your best opportunity. I don't Thing, you know, and, and most of these debates have featured this uh, uh, this sort of debate. A good you know, a good twenty minutes of the last debate kind of focused on this. This seems to be the most uh, softest underbelly, you could say, of of the Warren campaign. I think what worries me is that you push this on, you, you make this argument to people, and the general is that people need prescription drugs. And Warren seems to believe if you just emphasize these words slower and more you know <laughs> and more clearly, people will then say, "Oh, okay, now the numbers add up." No, exactly right. And you were talking about the Medicare rates and uh, doctors uh, will be going out of business if uh, they don't feel like it's worth their time and, and they can't uh, make the money they need to, in many cases, to pay off their medical school bills still. And so uh, when you have all these people flooding the system and fewer and fewer providers, 
well, you got to do something there. And so you're either going to have very long lines, which you'll probably have, or you'll have the government. Remember we were talking about the uh, the Payment Advisory Board, the IPAB way back when with Obamacare? Mm-hmm. Uh, you thought Elizabeth Warren was annoying as the HOA person? Wait till, ah. wait till she comes up to you and goes, you do not need that knee replacement. You do not need that angioplasty. We are a caring and understanding death panel. <laughs> Oh, yes. Government efficiency. Whenever that's the argument of how you're going to save ah, yes, money. Oh, oh, and also she reduces overhead. That, that was the other thing. Like, oh, we're going to figure out how to have like, you know, one third the overhead we normally. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Right. Right. The government and efficiency. They always go together. All right. Let's go on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And we did talk about this uh, earlier in the week. Uh, some point today, if not already, Katie Hill will be a former member of Congress from the state of California. She gave her farewell speech on the House floor on Thursday. And for those who don't know, of course, uh, she's in a bitter uh, divorce proceedings with her husband. We don't know for sure that he's the one who uh, sent the compromising photos of her to uh, a few different uh, places and ended up with a few different media outlets. Um, Red State uh, published uh, one photo, strategically blurred, of her uh, unclothed, uh, brushing a staffer's hair. And then the Daily Mail had some others, including her unclothed, uh, involving a bong, and so, um, anyway, there's a, there's a debate to be had, certainly, about the tactics of the ex-husband, if this is the one who's responsible for it and how these photos got out and the whole revenge porn debate. But uh, yesterday, Katie Hill went on the House floor, and she did apologize for not uh, following through on what she promised to do and proving that uh, the people's house belongs to the people and the people that helped her get elected last year and so forth. But uh, then she pivoted uh, in a way that uh, is pretty odd, and I think... More belongs on a therapist's couch, but uh, here's what she had to say. I will never shirk my responsibility for this sudden ending to my time here. But I have to say more because this is bigger than me. I am leaving now because of a double standard. I am leaving because I no longer want to be used as a bargaining chip. I'm leaving because I didn't want to be peddled by papers and blogs and websites used by shameless operatives for the dirtiest gutter politics that I've ever seen and the right-wing media to drive clicks and expand their audience by distributing intimate photos of me taken without my knowledge, let alone my consent, for the sexual entertainment of millions. I'm leaving because of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality, and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse, this time with the entire country watching. Oh, but she wasn't done yet. The forces of revenge by a bitter, jealous man cyber exploitation and sexual shaming that target our gender and a large segment of society that fears and hates powerful women have combined to push a young woman out of power and say that she doesn't belong here. Jim, as far as we can tell, uh, she was uh, forced out by Nancy Pelosi because she violated the recently enacted uh, congressional rules about not having romantic relationships with your staffers. So why she and uh, the mainstream media are, are... perpetuating this smokescreen, while we can have the debate about the release of the photos, certainly, the issue that's forcing her from Congress is being ignored. It's amazing. You know, she begins by saying she accepts responsibility for her role in her departure. And then she never says anything about it. Right. <laughs> to listen to that speech, you would think that that this is, that ultimately this was about the release of the photos. This was, you know, the House Ethics Committee was not looking at the release of the photos. And I will say... Greg, I hope you don't mind me speaking on your behalf. The official policy of the Three Martini Lunch podcast (laughs) is that you, if you are a member of Congress, we don't want to see you naked. 
I think I think you feel safe. You know, yes. even even the younger ones. I'm sorry. I just I don't need to see it. Don't care. Um, you know, there there's an argument to be made that lawmakers, plenty of lawmakers, uh, uh, have had you know affairs, and that this is you know up to between the simple matter between them, their spouse, the other party, I suppose, and maybe their constituents. <laughs> you know, the, the, the constituents are free to reach. Them. But it was not that the House Ethics Committee was you know investigating the release of these photos or something like that. Releasing photos of of someone, uh, naked photos of someone without their permission is a bad thing to do. It is a wrong thing to do. It is malevolent. It is often violating the law. And yes, go ahead and investigate it. Um, let's point out though, it's the person who had the photos and distributed them who committed the crime. Yeah. Jennifer Von Lahr or anybody at the Daily, uh, at the Red State, at Red State or Daily Mail, hey, look, this is the same thing for, you know, publishing, if publishing state secrets doesn't violate the law, uh, I don't really understand how you could argue that anybody who publishes information like this uh, violates the law. But secondly, you know, without you know running into a, creating a giant First Amendment uh, uh, case there, but beyond that, you know, the, the, ultimately the photos are immaterial to, to the reason of this. You know, if she really did not have this affair with a congressional staffer, she already admitted having an affair with a, a campaign staffer. Now, by the way, it's kind of worth it. It's an interesting question here, Greg. So, if it is against House rules and regulations to have a sexual relationship with a member of your congressional staff. Why would you not extend that same rule to campaign staff? I suppose the argument would be the House doesn't have jurisdiction over what uh, candidates do, what uh, members do on their campaigns. But the dyna- same dynamics are at play. If you're a campaign staffer, your continued employment is dependent upon uh, the member. So I, I don't really see why you'd say, oh, well, this case it's okay. In that case, it's completely unacceptable. And the whole point here, and we just went through this whole thing with Me Too, is that, like, look, even when it's consensual, even when every, it's not sexual harassment, it's not uh, uh, sleep with me or you won't get promoted or something like that, even if it's none of those things are at play, there's still a couple problems. One being that how much can you really consent to someone who signs your paycheck? Um, it's a complete, there's, there's an imbalance in that relationship that I think most people would find morally troubling. Coupled with the fact of how do you feel, how do all the other employees feel? Um, you know, hey, Jim, we need you to switch places with Sandra and work the long shift because she needs to get off early that night. Oh, I suppose someone else needs to get off early that night, too. But this is a, you know, you, you put everyone else in the office in a really awkward position. Could a uh, member and a staffer uh, develop a, a you know, genuine romantic attraction between them? Fine. And I think that most people would say, look, at that point, just figure out if that person get hired by another office. We, we, you got to avoid that situation. Congresswoman Hill did not address any of this in her remarks. It was all about the photos and all that stuff. And again, the House Ethics Committee wasn't going to investigate that stuff. And if, if she, she insists also that she did not have an affair with a congressional staffer. Well, the house that's what the House Ethics Committee was going to investigate. Obviously, they're not going to investigate it now because she resigned. That ends the uh, these House Ethics Committee inquiries. If there was nothing there, then why would she resign? In her mind, she contends she did nothing wrong other than you know having an affair with a, a campaign staffer and that there was no affair with a congressional staffer, then why did she resign? So it doesn't add up, and I'm, I'm irritated by this spin coming from quarters who you think they should know better, but my suspicion is, is that they do know better, and they just want to do this because it's much more advantageous for them to see that Katie Hill be a victim than be a you know kind of embarrassing example of somebody who did not understand the boundaries you're supposed to have in the workplace. Case in point, 
Mav or Mave, I don't know how you say that, Weston of CNN talking about this yesterday. But also this pledge that she would speak out on these issues and be a voice for the many women who feel victimized because mm -hmm. their exes or boyfriends have photos of them that could be published or used against them. And it's, yeah. it's so complex and kind of tragic uh, just because she was a, really a political force within that freshman class. Complex and tragic. That's usually how they react to Republican sex scandals of this sort. Jim, um, we're conservatives and we often get accused of uh, trying to tell people what they can and can't do in their bedroom. And so I, I'm not uh, trying to say that, but uh, I will offer a little bit of advice here. You know the best way to avoid becoming the victim of revenge porn? Don't take part in pictures and videos in that sort of thing. Uh, as a Christian, I would also encourage people to keep it uh, within matrimony. But if you don't create the media, it's probably not going to get leaked. Yeah, at least until deep fakes come along. Not to depress people. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Thanks, Jim. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to happen. Maybe it's good. You know, the future is everyone will have a deep fake and then we'll all kind of shrug at this stuff. Eh, it's just a deep fake. Um, but a little more seriously, like what she observes there, it reminds me a bit of what we saw in the Kavanaugh case. And that no doubt this does happen in situations in which, you know, uh, oftentimes it's a guy, although it can happen the other way around. A uh, couple gets together, they take intimate photos or nude photos, they break up, one person still has the photos of the other, they put it out there and somebody gets very embarrassed. Oh, it's very understandable uh, that people would be frustrated by this uh, and then be you know, embarrassed by it, be angry about it. Look, when that happens, that's not really... The, the point of what led to Katie, if, that, if this had actually happened in this situation with Congressman Hill, people would see her as a victim and that that would be the most important and relevant aspect of this. But there's uh, the, the aspect here is that caused led to her resignation was the affair with the staffer, or right. the alleged right. affair with the staffer. Um, the only thing I'm going to jump here, remember with Kavanaugh, I think it was uh, Caitlin Flanagan, a uh, writer at The Atlantic, who I think usually I think is terrific, but she wrote, something like this happened to me when I was in high school. That's why I believe Kavanaugh's accuser. And I remember saying, well, what happened to you does not prove or disprove what happened in the allegations against Kavanaugh. I have no doubt that there are circumstances in which young women really are victimized by boyfriends or husbands or uh, just some guy that they end up uh, having an, uh, you know, a hookup with or something. That's really bad. That's not really what happened here, or at least that's not what spurred the resignation. And, you know, there seems to be a lot of willful blindness to that fact because it, uh, you know, works against the narrative that they want to create. Wow. Jim. We finally Happy reached the Friday, weekend. everybody. Yes, it actually is Friday. So uh, I'm sure we'll be sufficiently depressed come Monday morning on how the Jets and Bears have done. But until ah. then, have a great hey, weekend. We, we have the bye week against the Dolphins this week. <laughs> be careful what you say. Yeah. Uh, but I think you'll probably do okay. Bears play the Eagles this weekend in Philly. That'll go well. Uh, anyway, see you then. <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you again very much for being with us today. Have a great weekend and tune in Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.